From the I Magazine and the Columbia Daily Spectator, this is The Ear. I'm Grace Holloman, the editor of this podcast, and I am thrilled to present our third season. And I'm AJ McDougall. Our first story this year comes to you in two parts. Both are episodes about the history of activism, religion, and student organizers at Columbia. I reported the first episode in this series. This is a story about the historical role of chaplains and the legacy of 1968. Act one, cut from the same cloth. Here's how it happens. I've been researching one of Columbia University's chaplains, John D. Cannon, for a few weeks now. Every time I'm in the rare book and manuscript library, rifling through his archival papers, grave robber style, it feels like I'm back in 1968, at the height of the chaplain's influence. The pages of his letters are covered in his spidery script, some of it barely legible. Many of his typewritten letters are as thin as rice paper, still with slivers of the trees they came from embedded in the pulp. Not only does Cannon lead the liturgy every Sunday, but also the loose coalition of half a dozen other religious leaders on campus. In these letters, Cannon and his team support the students unconditionally, at a time when the administration's finger is hovering over the NYPD's number on speed dial. Right now I'm on the phone speaking to Shauna Anderson, one of the founders of the Student Homophile League, the country's first LGBT college group. We've been talking about Cannon for about 20 minutes or so. How he stuck his neck out for the SHL, how popular he was on campus, how radical he was. But it's been 50 years. So when I say... Was, um, to your memory, was the rest of Earl Hall like that? Like, I know you had people like Reverend Reverend William Starr and Rabbi Goldman. Do you remember anything about them? You know what? I'm going to have to step back. Because you know who I'm talking about? I'm talking about Bill Starr, not Reverend Cannon. and the entire focus of the investigation turned on a dime. It becomes stranger when I reach out to sources who I believe knew Cannon well based on my research. An email from Mark Rudd, another leader of SDS and coordinator of the protests in 68. I knew Reverend Cannon only a little bit. Most of our contacts with Earl Hall were through Reverend Bill Starr, who was extremely helpful on many levels. I had the impression that Reverend Cannon was sympathetic, but staying in the background. Here's more from Shauna Anderson. I don't know if there's like a hierarchy and he was the head of the chaplains on campus or whether he was part of the administration or I just don't remember having very much interaction with him at all or him being an influencer or a factor. Look, the average Columbia student today would have no clue who either Cannon or Starr was. But Cannon, at least, has boxes of letters, notes, sermons hidden in the archives, not to mention a WikiCU page. Yet, every person I spoke to about the chaplain's office in the 1960s agreed that Bill Starr had been more radical, on the student's side in a more visible way, more directly against the administration than John Cannon had. Now, to be clear, I'm not discounting Cannon's own importance. He wouldn't be in the archives if he weren't important, after all. So what makes a legacy for one holy man and not another? Why do we have records of Cannon's work, but not this William Starr's? And why did Cannon leave in 1969, apparently fed up, when Starr stayed for 30 more years? It's the weekend, and we're listening to a performance at Post Crip Coffee House. The original sign still stands in the corner under the fairy lights. 
it was a pretty big deal when that sign was stolen and sheepishly returned last semester. That's because the sign is one of the only pieces of original memorabilia from the crypt's founding in 1964. The crypt was a dusty, unused storage space until Cannon, then an assistant chaplain who had been at Columbia for less than a year, turned it into this cafe and hangout spot for students, where they could chill without getting a dose of Christianity with their cider, as Bill Starr himself said. Cannon was 29 years old and chafing at the bit to do some good. He was creating safe spaces for students and driving down to Mississippi to aid with voter registration during the long, hot freedom summer of 1964. We'd call him progressive today, but he took exception to that. Cannon spent a lot of his life rebuffing people who tried to muscle him under one political or social banner or another. But part of the reason he was attracted to Columbia in the first place must have been the challenge, which a friend of his outlined in a letter to him just before the young reverend arrived on the scene. Such a ministry is never easy, and there are many additionally complicating factors at Columbia, but your kind of abilities are badly needed there, and I trust it will be a rewarding and a growing experience for you. In July 1966, Cannon became university chaplain after a year of performing the role in an unofficial capacity. Now, one of those additionally complicating factors that his friend Zabriskie mentioned was the central administration at the time, headed by then-President Grayson Kirk and Vice President David Truman. More on them later. For now, let's leave them where they sat for the majority of the 60s, far away, sequestered in their silent offices. Ignoring the administration almost definitionally brings us to Bill Starr. When Cannon was promoted, someone had to be brought in to take on his old role as counselor to Episcopal students, someone familiar with the workings of the university from his brief time as an adjunct professor in the School of Architecture. He was named William, but he preferred the students call him Bill. This was the least of the administration's issues with him. On any given day, as a Columbia or Barnard student in the 60s, you might be walking across campus and spot a figure speaking to a small crowd on the sundial. Drawing closer, you see that the figure is dressed in a gray-black overcoat with a free elections and sunflower button, a reference to the Taiwanese student political revolution at the time. Maybe he resembles a cross between your high school art teacher and Vladimir Lenin. He might be saying something like this. Revolt is an act of refusal to be satisfied with the inhumanity and brutality of those who stand over you. It is a refusal to conform to the expectations and demands of the church or nation. It is a refusal to allow others to define the limits of your actions. But it's not your high school art teacher. It's Columbia's Episcopal chaplain. Here's the difference between him and Cannon. Cannon is crypt and star is sundial. While Cannon might have quietly taken a stand against some of the stodgier aspects of the church by supporting women's rights, say, Star outright told a student journalist, I really don't accept the institutional goals of the church. Here's his wife, Susan. In personal terms, he is the most complex and interesting man I've ever met in my life. It's too bad Cannon and Starr both aren't around to tell their own stories anymore. Cannon died back in 2015, Starr more recently in 2017. But there's no shortage of people with things to say about Starr. He liked a good fight. He really did. He liked a good struggle. He wasn't non-struggle. He wasn't a pacifist at all. Not at all. His daughter, Elsa Starr. And he was not singing Kumbaya. He wasn't that kind of priest either. Shauna Anderson, again. He never struck me as crazy, but he was, he was a risk taker. He would be willing to do things that he believed were right, even in the face of, you know, police or administrative sanction or you know, getting fired. Reverend Starr was a union organizer before and after the turbulent period of protest in 1968. He marched in Selma, not the one you're thinking of, but in one after that. 
He helped found the Rape Crisis Center at Barnard. Whether or not Cannon felt the same fire and fight that Starr evidently did, we'll probably never know. We do know, however, that they shared an enemy, the administration. But their starkly different methods for opposing social injustice represent a larger divide on campus, tension over whether to work with the administration to reform it or to fight directly against it. The biggest difference between the two men was in their proximity to the administration. Starr would stand against it with grand gestures and fiery rhetoric, but as university chaplain, Cannon clearly felt some pressure, and here he'd probably disagree with me on the record, to be the neutral face of Earl Hall, an office with a particularly liberal staff. Students at the time couldn't exactly ask why he presented as more moderate, but here's Anderson again with her own personal theory. And, and you know, even in these days when I used to work for the Girl Scouts, you couldn't talk to the press. You had to go to the press office, and then the head of the Girl Scouts would be the one quoted. So I assume the same thing. You go to the university and you want to know what's happening. You know, on the religious side, you only can get it from John Cannon. And Susan? And he was in a he was in a trickier a situation because he was between um, the administration and Bill. Cannon was careful not to sever ties with the rest of the administration, whereas Reverend Starr was a little more, well, devil may care. Cannon would always write a letter of support for a student, but Starr... He came to my draft board when I applied for conscientious objective status, which is very sweet. That was Ted Kapchuk, who's now a professor at Harvard. According to him, Starr didn't like to make compromises when it came to his own beliefs. If you didn't like it, you could leave. Once he had decided he didn't like you or your ethos, that was it for you and him, according to his wife. No, he and Truman um, butted heads a lot. And he didn't, I mean, as, as I said, they kept him at arm's distance. They never, I mean, they sent him letters once in a while disagreeing with him and stuff and um, saying he shouldn't act like that. It was more important to Cannon, by contrast, to keep as many people on campus as possible happy. His position was precarious, a constant balancing act to keep the lines of communication with the most disaffected students and disgruntled administration members open. And the students knew, of course. They knew that the two men filled these wildly different roles. Cannon was trusted, but distant. Starr was down in the trenches with them. I overlapped more with Bill. I felt that there was respect with Reverend Cannon. You know what's that called Reverend the whole time, right? Act two, Columbia's administration and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad gaze. Okay, um, I grew up in a suburb of Boston and um, my we had a new guidance counselor and she goes, have you ever heard of Barnard? No. Shauna Anderson came to Barnard in 1965. She met a Columbia student called Bob Martin who was going by the name Stephen Donaldson. And then it was really his idea about starting the Student Homophile League. You know, and now that name sounds so, you know, weird. But um, at the time, it was a radical idea. I don't think it's possible to overstress how unsafe the world was to an LGBTQ kid in 1965. Gay and transgender men and women were so regularly harassed and beaten, sometimes to death, and the authorities cared so little that accurate records are spotty at best. The official Wikipedia entry only begins listing U.S. hate crimes against LGBTQ people in 1969. So when Donaldson and Anderson decided to create the Student Homophile League, they fought with Columbia University for the better part of a year. When they did manage to get it approved, it became the first club of its kind at a university anywhere in the country. But he said, you know, everybody else has a club on campus. Why don't we? 
Anderson went before the board of directors of the university with Donaldson and two other members of the group. And we walk in, and there are, you know, all these old white men. And it's very formidable. The face was red the whole time because it was like, oh my God, what am I doing? Surprisingly, the board was initially open to the idea, granting them a charter relatively quickly. They think, you know, like, what, what's the big deal? I don't think it was because they really supported us. They didn't know what was in store for them. <laughs> and then the phone calls started. The letters came pouring in through the windows. Lawrence Chamberlain, the dean of Columbia College, told Donaldson that the university received more mail over the SHL than any other issue during his 20-odd year tenure. None of these letters are still in the archives. I can't say I blame the SHL for not keeping them. The Columbia administration, a little spooked, promptly took the charter away. Meanwhile, Reverends Cannon and Starr were regularly speaking with the administration on how they had the obligation to be fair and open-minded to the SHL. Cannon gave the group his office to use as an informal meeting spot until the charter could be re-granted. He and his wife were getting some pretty nasty letters and phone calls. Donaldson wrote that he dealt with this quietly, gracefully. Cannon wasn't up and yelling in the face of the administration the way that Starr was able to, but it was Cannon's one form of resistance, the only kind the virtue of his position afforded him. The SHL eventually came up with the idea to use the names of sympathetic student leaders around campus on a pro forma members list. Then, the administration had no choice but to re-grant the charter. When Vice President Truman spoke to a spec reporter in May 1967, right after the charter was granted, he said the group was, quote-unquote, unnecessary. Truman, according to that journalist, quote, declined to comment on the possibility of Columbia's becoming a mecca for homosexual college applicants, unquote. Cannon's relationship with the SHL wasn't a perfect mentor-mentee, guardian angel one, though. After the charter was finally granted by the administration in 67, the New York Times covered it. A headline blasted, Columbia Charters Homosexual Group. Other publications followed suit, using the Times' as lines. This was a novel thing to be gawked at, after all. But then, on May 4, 1967, spec journalist Charles Scoro published an article entitled Homophile League Criticized for Seeking Excess Publicity. In the article, Cannon was the one doing the criticizing. He was quoted saying that college homosexual tendencies may have partially stemmed from some desire to break some societal taboo. There was some animosity between Cannon and the SHL in the ensuing months. A year passes with no more papers to speak of, and on May 16, 1968, the SHL adopts a resolution. A resolution concerning John Dyson Cannon, chaplain of the university. It's pretty long, but basically details Cannon's history of support for the group, including the time, energy, and abuse he endured in the name of supporting them. Therefore be it resolved that John Dyson Cannon be elected the first honorary member of this organization, signed by the presentation committee. So, it wasn't a perfect relationship. But I think the resolution speaks for itself. Cannon was there when it counted. He put his own neck on the chopping block for us. And in no little measure, because of his action, he was forced to leave Columbia in 1969. Our last chaplain. After the SHL became public, he was deluged with hate mail. He and his wife were harassed with threatening phone calls. There, there was trouble from within the Episcopal Church. All of this he bore with cheerful grace. He was our lightning rod. Cannon himself denied to the end of his days that this had any part in his resignation and departure in 1969, but it's impossible to look at the records and fully believe that. He'd hate that I'm assuming this. After all, he didn't keep any of the angry letters either. 
but I have to believe that the lack of administrative support for the SHL must have played some part in Cannon's ultimate resignation. Maybe the appearance of buying into that system had just become too much for him, and donating his personal papers to the archives was a way of setting the record straight. He wasn't with them. Not with their response to the SHL, and certainly not with the onslaught that was to come. April, 1968. Act 3. Harlem is burning. On April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was murdered, and someone lit the night's first fire in Harlem. Myself and another SDS guy um, went over to um, uh, Morningside Drive and looked down, and we saw Harlem just on fire, and, 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 and just a, a wail of, 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 of screaming and, and, and police sirens and fire engine sirens. And we went down. We, 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 we ran down the hill into the, into the riot, and, and uh, I... I, I, I Eventually, we got separated, and people would, would, would run up to me and say, get out of here, it's not safe for you, meaning for a white kid to be running around Harlem. But I ran around for hours just watching. I couldn't believe my eyes. I, I, I'd never, never seen such a thing. And so I was, I was really shaken, as was everyone shaken, about the continuation of racism and murdering uh, of King, but also in the, you know, the existence of a ghetto. That's Mark Rudd. His name comes up a lot when historical student activism at Columbia is discussed. He's the guy with the heavy eyebrows and the black and white photos, often the one behind the megaphone. In the students' view, with the Vietnam War and the plans for a segregated gym in Morningside Park, the administration had washed their hands of the young adults they were supposed to be educating, and the community with whom they were supposed to be coexisting. In 1968, students demonstrated, the NYPD raided, and campus exploded in a rage against Columbia's administration. They were very conservative. Even when they were liberals, they were conservative, like David Truman. Um, they, 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 Columbia was an extremely stodgy place, probably still is. And, and uh, they, they liked it that way. They liked it divorced from the community, so to speak. They were scared of Harlem. They were terrified. You might have known that. What you might not know is that the protesting Columbia students were not a unified front against Columbia. Amidst dizzying factionalism, two figures to keep in mind here are Rudd and Kapchuk, who were deeply involved with Students for a Democratic Society, one of two groups along with the Student Afro-American Society, leading the occupations. Since 1966, they had slowly been becoming the de facto leaders, Kapchuk reluctantly, Rudd enthusiastically, of the two opposing sides of the schism that had begun to tear the fabric of SDS. The two sides, the Praxis Axis and the Action Faction. It was the 60s, they liked rhymes. This is oversimplifying it, but essentially the Praxis Axis consisted of older leaders of SDS, more focused on education and organization, working within the system to change it. Led by Kapchuk, the group was sympathetic to Cannon's style of leadership. Rudd's Action Faction, on the other hand, were newer firebrands who honed in on direct action and civil disobedience, a little more like Star. I, I said the strange thing about it was that I said we were more reckless and, and, and more um, aggressive, you might say. This isn't to suggest the two sides exclusively hated each other, or that there was no overlap between the two of them. After all, like Kapchuk said in his email, he felt as though he knew Starr better than Cannon, because Starr was on the streets with the people, and Cannon was in the back rooms, trying to dissuade the administration from severely disciplining every student that disagreed with them. 
Right before the protests, as these tensions were reaching a boiling point, Cannon and Starr were beginning to organize a memorial for King, one that consulted with SAS, when Cannon got a call from the administration's business manager. He told him that Kirk and Truman would be handling the memorial, absent of any student involvement. Cannon, according to his own account, blew up. While Cannon was distracted with trying to juggle the administration's bureaucratic red tape and disgruntled students who wanted a role in organizing the memorial, SDS was mobilizing. And so comes Tuesday, April 9th, a cool day with no spring showers to speak of. Here's Mark Rudd. Uh, it was all very solemn, and uh, St. Paul's, is that what it's called, St. Paul's Chapel? It was filled. I, I probably had never even been in there. And, and uh, it's quite an imposing building, actually. It's in a... I believe in a Romanesque style. And at a certain point, I, I just got up and, and uh, stood in front of the mic and, and, and said, this, this is a moral outrage, what's happening. Immediately, the mic went dead. <laughs> Maybe they knew it was going to happen, you know. They must have somebody on, on a switch. Cannon didn't know the student who stood up. He assumed that it was an impromptu thing. He describes a small, quiet student in a necktie and jacket walk up slowly and calmly and make a brief statement, maybe two minutes long. Cannon watched Kirk and Truman carefully as Rudd mentioned them both by name, decrying them. Both men had what Cannon called a viscerally negative reaction to the speech. I, I, I think that, that it really pissed them off. It pissed off the administration a lot. Forty people in total joined Rudd in the walkout. Rabbi A. Bruce Goldman, himself one of the more progressive members of Earl Hall, rose to the microphone and asked people not to leave. But Cannon took him by the arm and quietly had him sit down. If there's any gesture, for me, that captures the man who fielded the Student Homophile League's hate mail grimly and who kept pamphlets listing New York's state abortion clinics in his office, it's this one. When the walkout was finished, Cannon stood up, already worried that Rudd would be kicked out of Columbia. I couldn't let it go at that. I couldn't just close the service without making some sort of response to it. Before I knew it, I was standing up making this, this statement, which was utterly uncalculated. I didn't know when I started talking what I was going to say, and what I said was this, as I recall. Any man or student who sincerely believes that he's moved by the spirit of truth, who speaks in good conscience, and who wants to speak in this chapel at any time, on any occasion, is free to do so. So be it. And I sat down. I think those are my precise words, and I didn't say it in an angry tone of voice. Then he and Dr. M. Moran Weston, a famous preacher from Harlem, joined hands and led the chapel in singing We Shall Overcome. John, I cannot let this drop here. Dave, if you don't let it drop, you're going to have a hell of a fight on your hands. Cannon turned to Kirk, who was apoplectic with rage. And I don't know whether I said anything further, because at that point Dr. Kirk threw one of his rages, which I had seen and witnessed before. It was what I would call a rage, a tantrum, it seemed to me. He screamed, So long as I am president of this university, no one will do this kind of thing with impunity. With that, he and Truman walked out. To Spectator the next day, Truman said, I'm sure that the chaplain spoke out of conviction at the time. I wouldn't have spoken the same way. I wonder whether he might, on reflection, alter his remarks in some way. The reporter had the foresight to contact Cannon for the same article, who replied acidly, quote, that he had no intention of altering his remarks, unquote. Though he was invited, Cannon didn't join SDS's subsequent peaceful demonstration in Lowe Library. 
I have to believe that Bill Starr did. Cannon promised himself that he would resign if Rudd ended up facing disciplinary action. Over the next few days, Cannon kept up his job as the link between the administration and the students, pleading with Alexander Platt, the dean of students, to establish regulations so that no one who walked out would face arbitrary dismissals. But persuading President Grayson Kirk was impossible. A few weeks later, on April 23rd, the sit-in at Hamilton Hall began. Cannon is hard to place during the protests. The central administration cut off their communication with him entirely until the night of the police bust on April 30th. He and the rest of his office managed to turn Earl Hall into a neutral emergency care space. He spent most of the week talking to students. My position was basically neutral, but I was trying to be human. Whatever that meant under the circumstances, I don't know. At one point, the oppositional student group to the protests, the so-called Majority Coalition, mostly athletes, tried to storm Fairweather Hall. Cannon, though terrified, linked arms with the professor to stop the athletes from getting through. While Cannon was outside Fairweather, Starr was inside it. The one moment where we can pin Starr down is the night of Sunday, April 29th. Protesters had been occupying Fairweather since that Thursday, and morale was flagging. Here's Richard Egan, who was in the building with his girlfriend at the time, Andrea Boroff. I mean, the strike was kind of crumbling to some degree. As I recall, I'm sure people would have a much different recollection of how that all went than I do. Uh, and a friend of mine, Mike Kirschberger, came to us and said, there's a move on to get you guys married. And really what they were looking for was something to kind of uh, rally and solidify, you know, the social cohesion and the political resolve of the strike. So we did. A cheesecake from uh, Mrs. Grossinger's Upper West Side Bakery was obtained. We went up to the little faculty conference room with the, <laughs> the, the doer portraits of, you know, Columbia University uh, deans, professors, and other esteemed personages were hanging on the wall, you know, this kind of old school oil paintings. Someone provided me with a Nehru jacket, you know, with a collarless uh, white jacket that was in style in those years, um, a set of love beads, and a black power button. Someone handed Andrea a small veil and white turtleneck. Somebody else ran out, intending to fetch Reverend Starr. Uh, Bill uh, came in the window uh, with everything else, and um, we emerged uh, onto the balcony to meet, uh, or uh, maybe Bill came up to give us marital counseling, I don't remember. Everyone downstairs, or many of them, uh, had lit candles, and the lights were darkened. Someone put a Jefferson Airplane album on a sound system, and I can be as glib as I want to be about trying to describe this to you. But I can't. Uh, no matter how much time has gone by, and no matter what, no matter what my life is like now, um, when I really think of that event from step to, you know, step to step, um, it's incredibly moving to me in retrospect. Hi, Andrea. Take me, Richard. Hi, Andrea. Take and it was then, and uh, he made some various remarks and asked us appropriate questions. 
and said, I now pronounce your children of the new age. And, uh, it was fascinating. It was, I mean, it was a great, great and exciting time. Richard and Andrea actually did get married officially at the end of May. They asked Bill Starr to officiate again. He also did their daughter's wedding more than 20 years later. It just seemed the right thing to do. It provided continuity and, uh, you know, heart and soul. Starr, according to his wife, was arrested the night of the police bust. It wasn't the first time he was arrested, and it was far from the last. He also organized the counter-commencement of Columbia students that June 4th, leading some of them in their walk out to the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. The actual commencement was held in St. Paul's Chapel. The sermon, which opened the ceremony, was delivered by John D. Cannon. Unlike Starr, once again, Cannon's sense of duty to the students won out over any desire he might have had to protest the institution. But even though he fell in line this time, what little resistance he had provided the students still landed him in hot water with the administration. Act 4, Columbia's Holy Terrors. History is messy, and rarely are we going to get a fully satisfying story. Cannon resigned from his position at the university in 1969. There was no noble last stand from him. There was no dramatic sacking scene in Kirk's office. Cannon's departure didn't tie in perfectly to the fact that his social justice action, however understated and behind the scenes, was still too much for the administration. He had just decided it was time for him to move on. People do that. So Cannon left, recommending the abolition of the university chaplain position as he went. He had done his best, but he was done with the ringer that the job had put him through, and probably didn't want anyone else to suffer it either. In Cannon's own words, May 1968. We have been ridiculed by members of the administration, central administration and college administration, for what they construe to be the support which we have given to SDS and other radical groups very strongly ridiculed for this, and repeatedly ridiculed for it. I think it's wrong to call it support. I think that we simply feel that we are doing our duty as persons who are responsible for administering this building and these human beings, and attempting to relate to these kids, many of whom are alienated and confused, and all of whom are grappling with very serious and very pressing moral and ethical problems. Publicly, in a manner typical of him, Cannon wrote a letter to the editor of Spectator a day later disputing this explanation, trying to keep the peace until the very end. But Starr stayed. Since 1965, he had been confronting the administration far more directly. There was certainly tension to spare. Yet he stayed at Columbia. He stayed and stayed and stayed in various counseling and adjunct professorship capacities until finally he retired in 2002. If the administration disliked some of Cannon's activities, they hated Starr and everything he stood for. In case you're not yet convinced, here's his wife again. They didn't like him. Um, they really didn't like him. I mean, the 1968 strike was a huge, a huge thing. And it was just one of those boiling points. And, um, you know, he was, he was very, very, very active in it. And they tried to get of him then. They tried to push him out of the, the apartment, but he was just very canned. They couldn't, you know, make a huge public thing about, I mean, he would have played that up, you know. Starr himself had no lost love for Columbia either. It was a love-hate relationship, okay? He had an adversarial relationship with the university and even with the way higher education is. It, it didn't bother him in the least to criticize elite institutions. Um, he didn't hold them 
up in awe, if, I, if I'm making any sense to you. The extent to which the administration favored Cannon over Star is even present in the archives. The reason I've been able to speak to so many details of Cannon's life is because it's all there. There's nearly no trace of Star online or in Columbia's written or oral history. He didn't give any of his papers to Columbia when he retired. Susan cites this partially as due to her husband's disorganization and privacy. But also, Grace and I reached out to Kimberly Springer, the curator for oral history at Columbia, in the hopes that Star might have recorded an interview before he left the university. She told us that the oral history project doesn't have Star's interview in the collections, not in the stacks, not in the off-site copies. What's funny about this is that Star did actually give an interview. Springer has a record of this, but it would seem that the background files indicate that Star never returned his edited transcript to the university. He didn't care for that. He really didn't care. I mean, he wouldn't, he, the last thing in the world he would have done is to get a box and give it to Columbia or something like that. He would never do that. And he, and he just wasn't interested in doing that. He didn't care what the university thought about him. Well, I mean, he got hurt by them, but he wasn't about to help them. If we had a transcript of his time at Columbia during 1968, I wouldn't have to speculate about the exact nature of his involvement versus canons with the establishment of the SHL, whether he knew about SDS's walkout and why he stayed at Columbia for so long. Or, that's a lie. That last one has at least a partial answer. Susan, again. Um, he loved being with students. He just, you know, he just loved it. He loved his job. He was there for 37 years. He was paid by the diocese, and he was a thorn in their side. And, um, Star loved his work despite, or perhaps because of, the conflicts it inspired. It doesn't seem fair that Cannon receives the lion's share of the credit for the progressivism in Earl Hall during this period. Though he certainly was a key player on paper, and behind the scenes, it's Star that the people I speak to remember. Star didn't have to set the record straight by donating his personal papers to the archives because he knew his legacy was secure in the minds of the people he touched, whereas Cannon's was mired in what looked like his role's complicit association with the bad guys of 68 the central administration. But because of the way people remember them, I really don't have to speculate when it comes to Starr's character, unlike Cannon's. Here's Shauna Anderson, SHL founding member. He did not, you know, it wasn't like, he just wasn't a traditional religious guy. He was a really good man. He was just one of those people who was willing to stand up for, you know, the principles that Christ espoused, not the traditional church espoused. Here's Ted Kapchuk, member of SDS. He's a sweet man, but a very kind man. And here's his daughter, Elsa Starr, on what her father taught her. That's what your job is to do as a person, you know, is to be open and to be generous and to, you know, to the people that are, you know, important. There's a letter that a Barnard student called Cindy Reed wrote in June 1968 to Earl Hall. It was in one of the archive boxes I looked through. I like to think that both Cannon and Starr got a chance to read it. The university can get lost in its words and mazes all too easily, and we need someone to speak of both the pain and the hope. Not for an audience of thousands, maybe, rejected by many, maybe, but your words and your presence reach not only me and others of the so-called chapel congregation, but many outside it. I know because they've said so. So wherever you go from here, my thanks, and God with you.
AJ McDougall reported this episode, which was edited by archival superhero Kara Schechtman and produced by audio whiz Amy Rupert. Julia Emerson Colvin, Jordan Marr, Jared Rush, Sal Volpe, Francisco Alvarez, Adam Glusker, Gus O'Connor, Will Cagle, Una McKinnon-Hoban, and Xander Brown voice acted in this episode. All sound effects were provided via freesound.org, and a very special thank you to Candle Gravity, who provided music for the episode via freemusicarchive.org. Thank you for listening to The Ear. Come back in two weeks for the second part of our series on Bill Starr. You can find The Ear on iTunes, SoundCloud, Overcast, and Stitcher. And for regular long-form reporting, read The Eye, published weekly online at theimag.com. <laughs>